Good afternoon and welcome to the security seminar from Purdue University. Our speaker today is Peter Bodchi, a research scientist from NCSA at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Also has adjunct faculty positions with CS and ECE departments there. His topic today is toward hazard-aware spaces, knowing when, where, and what hazards occur. Peter? Thank you. So welcome to the seminar. And um, let me first introduce what I'm going to be talking about uh, today. Uh, I would like to introduce you to our work environment, what kind of research and development themes we are uh, working on, and uh, kind of slowly uh, go over the, the main focus of our research and development, which is multi-instrument measurement systems, what type of so software and hardware we are using, and then focus on the hazard-aware spaces project, where uh, I'm going to try to define the, the, the problem, what are the technology components that we are using, and what are the research and development related uh, efforts that are related to integration of data across disparate sensing systems over time and space and variable. And since this is a security seminar, I'll show the relevance to security research and try to kind of uh, get you excited. Why I am really here is really to introduce these problems to you and then show the significance of security to many of these applications. I'll also mention some other applications, and, uh, and I'll explain the term X-informatics, which uh, I have been using lately, and then summarize my talk. I always like to start with uh, giving credits and acknowledgement to all the funding agencies that uh, fund our work, which is NSF, ONR, NIH, NARA. We are really not very picky. And uh, we have about three to four, four, five, three to four five students, uh, full-time people, and then about eight to nine students. Uh, at any time point, probably like I can support about four students. Uh, on this particular project, there, we had about four, four projects, uh, four students. So what are the research and development themes that we have been thinking about? The first one is uh, clearly when you look around and you see the, uh, the novel technologies around you, the question comes, how can these advancements in sensor technology, computer science, and electrical and computer engineering help people? Okay, the technology is around us, but can it help? And then the question is, okay, where is the gap between the Moore's Law advancements and the use of these advancements by people? Yes, you can have all kinds of cool stuff around you, but then how do you really use it? Somebody has to take that effort and then figure out things. And then finally, because I used to work for machine vision companies and for other uh, uh, government contracting companies, uh, the, the, the enormous amount of data that we are processing today or acquiring and processing and uh, the tasks that we are doing and are very tedious and laborious, uh, they could be automated. So really, my, my intention is to kind of free people from tedious and laborious tasks by designing multi-instrument measurement systems. There is no single instrument that can solve certain uh, difficult problems, but if you take many, many instruments and you put them together, you might be able to, to solve uh, very difficult problems. So as I mentioned, uh, our, our goal is to understand multi-instrument measurement systems. And uh, the focus is to develop theoretical models and uh, perform experimental understanding of multi-instrument measurement systems that deal with multi-dimensional, multivariate data and include multi-spectral cameras, multimodal imaging instruments, sensor networks, wireless communication, data acquisition, fusion, analysis, modeling, and visualization components whatever you can think of. 
So it's a very broad spectrum of, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, domains that we are trying to cover and go from sensor instruments through data acquisition, data integration, analysis, and synthesis. And clearly, there are many, many applications domains. I just picked three that we, uh, we published and uh, worked in, which is the biomedical, or bioinformatics, and medicine domain. And we have a lot of projects in the GIS, geographic information systems domain, especially in the agriculture domain, because we are like uh, Purdue, we are in the Midwest, and we work with the agriculture department, hydrology, water quality, um, structural and earthquake engineering, environmental engineering people. And then we are looking at these novel sensors and then trying to build smart spaces. Clearly, military is interested. Machine vision is, uh, is one application, plant biology, and healthcare. Um, our little imaging lab that we have has several uh, cameras. We have hyperspectral cameras. If I would ask you what's a hyperspectral camera, clearly if you take a regular camera and you take a picture, you will get, mm, let's say, uh, RGB. You get three values that cover the wavelength range from 400 to 700 nanometers. But if you have hyperspectral camera, you can have hundreds of values. So that means you might have much better discrimination when you are looking at different uh, shades of color. Uh, we also have multi-spectral camera that NASA is using, for example, when they deploy a, a space shuttle or a rovers, and they want to explore environment. They have, let's say, red, green, blue, and near infrared, and everything comes together. We have thermo-infrared camera that detects heat, and then we have wireless and wired cameras so we can build systems with these. We also have a robot with robotic arm, which we are using for deploying sensors. And then when we want to control uh, robots, we use for example, gesture, and then we use orientation sensors to uh, remotely control uh, uh, deployment of sensors. And the sensors that we are currently using are the crossbow smart MEM sensors, and I'll uh, show them a little bit later. We also have audio, so I can, the same way as I have the microphone now, I can say move ahead or uh, uh, give commands, and the robot is going to perform them. And then we are looking at RFID tags and readers, and um, that will be part of our environment as well. In terms of publication and software, we try to document our work so we can disseminate our, uh, our knowledge. And uh, there is a software tool called Image to Knowledge, and you can find the manual on our website. And also, there are many, many publications about our solutions. And you can see the variety of pictures that I put here. Those are the types of data that we process from very, very different domains. And I, at the end of the presentation, I will show you what is common in all these domains. So just to give you a quick uh, list of examples of problems and solutions and applications that we have been dealing with, clearly, let's say, crop yield prediction using hyperspectral data. Instead of sending graduate students to collect measurements at the ground, you can have a little Cessna flying over your farm field, and then you collect hyperspectral data, and you can predict exactly what's the soil conductivity, what are the other measurements, and then you can predict your crop yield. Spectral seed modeling, for example, you want to fly tomorrow, and you want to predict that scene, from a certain view angle, can you, uh, can you reconstruct that scene based on uh, terrain map and elevation maps and so forth, uh, and possibly BRDF stands for bidirectional reflectance texture functions. Historical map analysis, again, you are doing restoration project. You want to restore some area close to a river. You want to go and um, uh, recover maps from 1900. They are, you scan them, you want to recover the information about isocontour so you can restore that area. 
And then we deal with integration modeling of large size remote sensing data for hydrology community. We build a lot of decision support uh, systems. And today I, I'm going to primarily talk about the hazard aware space and the robot control using arm gestures. Uh, a little bit about uh, sensor registration and fusion. And then there is another set of applications that deal just with uh, uh, bioinformatics issue and, uh, and uh, medical issues. And uh, I will not mention them today. We also, since we are part of the university, we are trying to educate students, like what you are here. Uh, we are more or less building tools for the students to use and then figure out things like, okay, how to do image operations, how to, do, uh, how to understand sensors and uh, similar. So let me uh, now introduce the problem, the hazard aware spaces. And I put there a simple question. If you are in a smart room, what you really want to know, it's a basic question, where, is a, where, when, and what type of hazard occurred? So you are sitting in your office, you are studying, and these are the basic questions that you want to know if you are building such a system. So if you think about it, um, there is a smart room, let's say, in this audience or in this room, we will have sensors uh, that report, let's say, temperature. And then um, the temperature might rise in this corner. And then there might be a camera that's looking and then checking whether it's really hazard. Um, um, maybe that was just a false alarm. Uh, then you analyze what's the type of uh, uh, fire, whether it's a burning uh, uh, wall or it's the carpet or it's the, uh, it's the desk and so forth. And then uh, you are trying to trigger some event. For example, you can call 911. Or you can uh, call a robot and extinguish or contain that hazard. So you are really trying to put together multiple sensing devices, gather the information, figure out where the sensors are, at what time the measurement was taken, and what kind of hazard um, is, uh, is occurring. So if I want to uh, describe the problem, I would say, well, given wired and wireless multi-spectral cameras and other point sensors, assess hazards in an indoor environment. And my inputs are the wired multi-spectral sensors, like a thermal, a thermal infrared camera, hyperspectral camera, visible and multi-spectral camera inputs. And then I have these point sensors that give me, that have onboard processing capabilities, and they can measure temperature, acceleration, uh, luminance, all kinds of variables. And my system requirements are, well, I want to adaptively position these sensors in space and time possibly switch between sensing temperature and luminance and other variables. Um, then I want to have minimum wireless loss in the space. Um, so there is uh, an issue with transmission and reception. And then I want to optimally integrate all the data across disparate sensing systems over time and space and provide accurate and fast calibration. If I get a reading 10, I don't know whether it's temperature 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I have to calibrate it value. And then um, I uh, sometimes might get false alarm, or from a security viewpoint, there might be a malicious sensor that's uh, reporting false alarm. I have to have confirmation mechanism and hazard understanding. And then somehow I have to alert humans. Usually in this kind of scenario, there is always human involved. So I have to have some kind of uh, interface to a human and then possibly develop an application that has the hazard containment component. 
So the motivation for doing this work is really, from a research perspective, is to figure out certain proactive surveillance uh, 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 system similar to a thermostat. I mean, right, so you don't really know that your thermostat is working at home, but it is switching on and off uh, your heating. Uh, there are bandwidth requirement reduction uh, issues. So for example, in this room, if I start to, if I install here 20 cameras, the bandwidth that I need for those 20 cameras is going to be huge. But if I'm just sensing with these point sensors, it's very low bandwidth, and I'll trigger the cameras only when I know that there is some kind of hazard. So the bandwidth, it's, it's very efficient use of the bandwidth. I also want to introduce spatially adaptive sensing. Um, there might be sensor uh, uh, failure. Um, it might be too expensive to put too many sensors in this room, so I want to be able to reshuffle the sensors in the room. And then uh, I would like to understand uh, the hazard. So when I call 911, I'll say, okay, it's in this room, and, and it's the furniture that's burning. Please bring appropriate extinguisher. Now, from a, from a technical viewpoint, the challenges are you, when you are building a system, you, you have to worry about the sensor selection and what's the ruggedness, weight, capabilities of these sensors. There are some power, memory, and CPU constraints. In terms of wireless communication, you always are concerned about limited range, delays in transmission, packet losses. Um, how do you deploy sensors? What if we would be deploying sensors in the radioactive, in a room that has radioactive material? We don't want to go there. We want to have some remote control uh, over the deployment. Then uh, how should I deploy the sensors? Should they form a grid? Should they be in a straight line? Should they be close to a wall? Uh, what's the optimal sensor layout? Uh, then I have to worry about the sensor and camera calibration, camera control. I'm switching. I have multiple cameras, so I want to be switched. I want to switch um, which camera is currently broadcasting. I want to have the, the capability to recognize and detect uh, hazard, hazardous event, and then possibly confirm and then propagate the alarm. So maybe I alarm uh, a security guard, but he is sleeping. Am I going to wait for half an hour and then propagate the alarm to uh, his uh, superior? Or how is that mechanism going to work? So this is what we developed so far. This is a prototype. We started with the sensor deployment aspect, which is left, uh, left uh, the left, uh, middle side, uh, of the slide. And then um, we developed techniques for deploying these MICA sensors that I will describe in the next few slides. Then we started to worry about synchronization of cameras and sensors. How do you synchronize all the measurements? Since we deployed the sensors, we want to know where they landed. So we apply multiple algorithms to localize the sensors. Now we start to acquire data. We want to know what's that measurement? What's the interpretation of the measurement? Is really raw value 10 a hazard, or it's just, it's just a regular temperature, ambient temperature? So we have to calibrate spectral cameras and sensors. Then when the camera, when I turn off the light in this room, you don't want to be sending visible spectrum camera to the operator because he wouldn't see anything. You want to turn on your thermal infrared camera, and that makes sense. So we have this proactive camera control, which really works without uh, us really knowing about it. And then sometimes you want to be doing regular checks, and you want to go and send a robot and walk into each room and say, well, fine, and scan the room and tell me if there is any hazard. So there is this hazard detection algorithm that we have in place. And then uh, we are not a really human computer interface people, but 
we are trying to figure out how would you build a friendly user interface so the operator immediately sees what's the temperature, uh, whether the light is on or off, he can switch between cameras, he can look at the sensor readings, and then eventually uh, when he sees a hazard, the hazard will be highlighted in his view so he can make a decision. And then there is the component that deals with hazard understanding and confirmation, I'll talk about it a little bit later, and then eventually hazard containment, which I'm sure will amuse you because you just build it in the lab uh, for demonstration purposes. So when you think about the whole system, it's a combination of research and development. When you think about development, you think about deploying the point sensors using uh, robot control. But when you think about the basic research, you really have to figure out how to control the robot remotely and how to adaptively uh, set up your application. How do you deploy the sensors? When it comes to calibrating cameras and point sensors, again, there is a research component what is my accuracy? Can I quantify the accuracy? And then can I do it real time? Speed is very important. Then it comes to controlling cameras proactively. It's very important for bandwidth control and information selection. What type of uh, camera I'm, I'm turning on. When it comes to the uh, uh, hazard detection, again, there are many, many issues how to understand the hazard. Uh, by just looking at the flame, can you tell what is burning? Um, the alert operator, again, there are research issues with the human-computer interface. And when it comes to hazard confirmation and containment, or you want to eliminate small hazard, uh, in my opinion, these are new applications for robotics because uh, clearly you cannot deploy robots in any scenario. It has to be well-defined. You might know the CAD model of the building or a floor plan and so forth. But it's a new, it's a research issue how to do that successfully and reliably. So here's the list of technology components that uh, we put together. So we can deploy point sensors in smart mode using robot control, using either a human-computer interface, keyboard, mouse, or using speech, or using gesture. And then we, can, uh, we have a video feedback from the robot, so we actually can verify and possibly track a few things in the room. Then we have the component that deals with calibration time, space, and measurement, all the spectral cameras and point sensors. Then we have a component that uh, switches the cameras, which we call proactive camera control using point sensors between visible and thermal infrared information. Then there is a component that deals with hazard analysis and human alert, which is really very, uh, very much related to emergency management and response. And finally is the hazard confirmation elimination using robot control which means really we have to go back, deploy more sensors, and we will attempt to contain hazard. Related work. Uh, clearly, the challenge here is that the use of technology components is scattered all over uh, many fields. The wireless sensing devices are frequently used in smart spaces, ubiquitous and proactive computing and situation awareness applications. Robots are used in industrial automation applications, autonomous modes of exploratory operations, and others. And the spectral cameras are used in detection and recognition systems where 2D and potentially 3D spatial and spectral characteristics are very informative. But these are very different communities many times. And uh, when you search for publications, so you don't reinvent the wheel, really publications are scattered in many domains addressing individual problems of antenna design. Many people are working on can I really adaptively change the antenna of my point sensor so the transmission and receptions have a much better efficiency? 
sensing, uh, tiny operating system, communication protocols, synchronization schemes, wireless programming, quality of service, security, reliability. You can find a journal about each of these issues, I would say. And the same applies to robot control, tracking, automation of repetitive tasks, autom uh, autonomous operation of these robots. And then if you go to the remote sensing community, let's say you will find many of the camera calibration tasks, image understanding, real-time video processing, automated recognition, classification, compression, security, distributed computing, you can think of it. So you can see that it's a very broad spectrum of problems and related work. So our, our work really embraces a very broad set of individual problems and proposes and leverages from data integration across disparate sensing systems over time, space, and variable to improve system performance, and eventually reveals advantages and limitations of novel technologies. And then finally, the discriminator is that we deal with real-time monitoring applications. Uh, in comparison with past uh, work, most of the past successful applications are not real-time. For example, the environmental and wildlife applications. There are applications in Maine, they uh, they use the sensors for monitoring some uh, uh, species like uh, birds. Um, let's say in, uh, in uh, California, they use it for monitoring temperature and moisture of uh, trees at different height. But these are very static applications. For some applications, the sensors even failed. For example, when you measure earthquake, clearly the sensor is not capable of uh, being idle for, let's say, 20 or, I don't know, uh, I don't know let's say, two years. And then suddenly there is an earthquake, and in that fraction of a second, you want to have sampling frequency, I don't know, once in hundreds of a second. But that sensor is not capable of doing that. So for some applications, these sensors are not even uh, appropriate. So let me show you the first component when we deploy point sensors and uh, using robot control. Here is a quick uh, introduction to these sensors. They are called microelectromechanical systems, or they are based on this technology. We call them smart because they have some computing and communication capability. Um, and there is a sensor board that has some sensing capability. And um, we run an operating system called TinyOS on these, and it was all developed by Berkeley. Um, the, the hardware consists of the motherboard that has a 4 megahertz uh, Atmel processor, and it has a radio board so it can communicate. And then the plug-in sensor boards have different functionality. The one that we use have light and temperature right now, but we have others that have microphones and buzzers. They have GPS and so forth. The challenge is that there is always a, a battery attached to these sensors, so you have to worry about energy and, your, you know, and the efficiency of your, of your processing. And then the interface board is attached to your PC, so you can program these, these little sensors. And also when the wireless sensors are communicating with your laptop, they go through the interface board. And here is a demo of uh, how we deploy the sensors, very simple one. More or less, uh, we load the platform of the robot with the sensors, and then uh, we just remotely control the robot to move it to the desired location and then the robotic arm is going to deploy the sensor. This is autonomous, or it's autonomous? Um, we control the robot deploy. So the robot knows exactly the location of the sensors, and we just say, OK, move to this location and deploy. Now, if we pre-program, then we say, OK, now you constructed a brand new building, and I want to deploy sensors in each room at this location, then it could be autonomous. 
Okay, so you can also see that as I was deploying these sensors, um, we had to solder the antenna to each sensor because it didn't come with it. And then we did the many, experiment, many experiments that really um, uh, explored what's the dependency of the orientation of the air, uh, antenna and the shape and so forth. And again, these are electromagnetics issues. Um, but our prime focus was to develop multiple interfaces. And here I'm showing our client-server uh, uh, architecture of that robot control system, where we have the keystrokes, clicks, and mouse, uh, uh, which uh, are processed by one PC, which is really uh, one interface to control the robot. Then we have the speech, uh, more or less I, am, I, uh, I have a wireless uh, microphone. I say, move ahead, and then the robot is going to execute that. And then we have the gesture uh, recognition. The gesture-based robot control is probably the most interesting, and um, it originated uh, uh, from Navy. Navy had the following problem. In these days, Navy aircraft carrier decks have UAVs, unmanned air vehicles. And when you go to the airport and you see people who are called yellow jackets or flight directors, and they show move ahead and pivot left and so forth, uh, the question is, um, can you build a system where you don't change anything in the current procedure, but the UAVs can be controlled the same way as these uh, aircraft uh, that have pilots in cockpits? The challenge is that in these kinds of environments, you have limited line of sight. There is a lot of interference, electromagnetic interference, acoustic noise, so you cannot use speech. Um, and there are many emitters. And these uh, people who are working on Navy aircraft decks are usually there 14 to 16 hours, so fatigue is a big issue. And they are exposed to temperatures between minus 10 and 140 Fahrenheit. So really, the technology that you build has to be very robust. So what we, we decided to do is a simple uh, demo in our lab where we mounted some sensors on a, uh, on a, on a human and then uh, collected data uh, did the recognition of the gestures, and then convert the gesture command into the instruction set of the robot, and the robot was uh, performing uh, the command. So the motivation and challenge is one more time. The motivation is to allow, allow the UAVs uh, to mix seamlessly with the existing traffic on an aircraft carrier's deck. And the challenge is what types of sensors you should choose, whether active or passive. How do you attach sensors if you choose active? How do you acquire the data, and what's the repeatability? If I'm very, very tired, my move ahead is going to look very different than if I'm fresh. What if I'm female as opposed to male? Do I have different gestures? Um, then um, clearly there are some automatic classification issues. How do you uh, classify what's the reliability of that? Everything has to be real time. That's another challenge. And then eventually you have to translate the hand gesture sequence into a sequence of autonomous vehicle commands and then execute and then get some feedback. So those are also challenges when it comes to designing such a system. In terms of related work, clearly other approaches uh, have been proposed in the past. There are vision-based systems using passive sensors. If you don't want to change anything in the Navy scenario, you just put some cameras there and then you compute uh, uh, stereo. And there is either with single or multiple cameras you acquire the video stream, and then you map the gestures into temporal signatures, and then you try to uh, uh, do the interpretation of that. The challenges are that in a harsh environment, uh, the flight director, there is a different orientation of the flight director. The outdoor illumination is changing all the time. 
and uh, there are possible occlusions. So the, the vision approach is not gonna work too well. Uh, we looked at the devices with active sensors. There are uh, devices like GLAUS with band sensors or miniaturized accelerometers. And again, the constraints are that it cannot be very heavy because these people are there for 14 hours and it has to be rugged and so forth. So eventually we decided to go with small sensors that report Euler angles, which is your pitch and roll. And then there is, uh, there is a mapping, unique mapping between Euler angles and gesture uh, gesture motions, and it was satisfying all the application requirements. And then we published a paper that uh, more or less analyzes what's the repeatability. So the the uh, the signs really denote that we can discriminate uh, gestures that are similar from those that are dissimilar. And then uh, uh, eventually the classification can work real time with some small delay here. You can see like here I'm showing just the uh, the pitch uh, signal that comes from four different sensors. Uh, and then uh, by analyzing, we can immediately say it's turned to left um, and command. And here's an example that uh, actually we analyze later on. What if I'm using microphone and I'm using gestures and I'm saying stop while I'm showing move ahead? What if there are conflicting commands? Now, the other issue is, okay, so what if they are consistent commands? which commands should, uh, should be executed. But if there are conflicting, for example, from the security viewpoint, you might have an intruder who's gonna intercept the signal and he will be saying move ahead while the aircraft is close to the edge of the, uh, the carrier, the, the ship, and it's gonna fall uh, off the, the board. So how do, you, how do you potentially deal with this? So again, you design a system that can deal with uh, that. And then, uh, uh, you can read about our publication. I have a list of publications. Okay, so now we deploy the sensors. We want to know uh, when hazards occur. So it's really a synchronization problem. So the problem statement is given a set of wired and wireless instruments and sensors, synchronize all measurements. Clearly there is related work. There are network time protocols, digital time synchronization protocols, security protocols for sensor networks. A lot of work. There are journal papers about this, tons of, tons of publications. What we've done is we said, look, our wired cameras, they can use the atomic clock and they use the network time protocol. Everything is connected via the internet. But the challenge is when you have these point sensors and they have to wirelessly communicate with the PC, how do you, how do you uh, synchronize those? So we view them as standalone PCs pretty much. And uh, what we decided to do is that at the startup, the PC uh, the, the laptop is gonna send the current time to each of the MICA, these point sensors. And then the MICA sensor, because it has a counter, will update this timestamp every X milliseconds, let's say 10 milliseconds. And then each reading, so after I measure temperature, I'm gonna be sending a packet that includes the reading and the counter back to the laptop, which is the timestamp. And then the laptop is gonna look at the difference between when the sensor reading is acquired and the time when the reading is received on the PC. And if it's larger than some threshold, in our case it was 350 milliseconds, then the PC and the MICA sensors will resynchronize time again. So that, that was the procedure. And that worked pretty well. Uh, so we synchronized them and uh, we asked the question, where did these sensors land? So where did they land? Um, 
again, our challenge here is we want to determine 3D location of the deployed wireless MICA sensors and possibly other objects in the scene, assuming that the camera locations are known, they are static. Previous work, again, can be split into two different areas. One is the 3D object recognition community, that, like computer vision community, machine vision, signal image processing communities. And they use, let's say, shape from cues like stereo, motion, shading, and they get a depth map. And there is a different community that deals with these wireless sensors, and they talk about location sensing, where um, they use radio or ultrasound time or flight laterization or signal strength analysis. And there are systems like MIT Cricket Indoor Location System and the AT&T BAT Ultrasonic Location System. Uh, they are just, just trying to solve this problem. The problem is very difficult on its own. So what we did, we proposed a fusion. So again, we know that there are different communities, different solutions to this problem. But we said, well, what if we take the stereo uh, approach, the vision-based uh, approach, we compute the depth. Then we use the localization approach. Again, we compute where the sensors are approximately located. Then we perform data fusion, and then we get much better location of these sensors and all the objects in the scene. So that was the basic idea. Uh, the way how the fusion works is that you look at the stereo first, and you say, OK, uh, many of you probably know that if you compute stereo, uh, as you go away from the camera, the uncertainty is going to increase. So clearly, the objects that are close to you, they will be more accurately predicted than the, the ones that are far away. So we computed something called depth uncertainty. And uh, when it came to the sensor localization, um, for those of you who don't know how this works, clearly these sensors have acoustic and uh, radio transmitters. There is a buzzer. and um, uh, the, the sequence goes like this. First, the base station is going to send a message to all the MICAs and say, we are going to be doing this localization. Then sensor C and B, in this case, would send acoustic and radio ranging transmissions everywhere. And then the uh, sensor A would receive the radio ranging transmission. And after a while, it would receive the acoustic ranging transmission because acoustic waves are slower. And it would measure the difference and report back to the base station the difference, which is really used for, estimation, uh, for estimating the Euclidean distance. The challenge was, if you look at the upper right corner, when we used our sensors, the, the pink uh, line is really what we expected. We had sensors uh, uh, apart, let's say, one foot, two feet, three feet, and so forth. And then when we measured the, the blue curve, the difference was pretty significant. I think the error was about two, two meters. Uh, so we tried to compensate it, but it was not uh, uh, very satisfactory. Then we realized that the, what we have to do is use much more powerful buzzer. And uh, we borrow some sensors, and we get much better results. So here, uh, the distribution of the error as a function of distance between two adjacent sensors uh, shows that we got better results. Uh, however, there is a physical limitation. If you take uh, two sensors because the counters have finite sampling frequency, you cannot get better than 30 centimeter um, uh, accuracy. So there is always some uncertainty. So uh, by understanding the uncertainty issues, we uh, build a fusion mechanism which really is shown in the middle. 
uh, I don't have the pointer, but more or less the, the curve shows the, the pink uh, or purple graph shows that uh, the uncertainty for the stereo is going up as you go away from the camera, while the localization was pretty much stable for, for, uh, for certain range. And remember, this is only single hop transmission. And uh, here on the right, you see that the measurements that were originally obtained by the localization algorithm were improved after fusion um, by a certain percentage. I think it was by 27%. The same way we could take the, the depth estimation from the stereo algorithm and improve it with the, with the point uh, measurements obtained from the localization, and that was about 98%. But if you can find the threshold, which is shown there, there are two regions. I think I can use my mouse here. So there is a region where you should be using just the stereo, and there is a region where you should be using the, the localization, and that way you get the best result. Uh, we even built some uh, theoretical models of these fusion parameters so we can uh, predict what should be the fusion threshold for multiple setups, and um, that really is based on the uncertainties uh, of these different methods. Uh, on the left side, you see if we fix the depth map uncertainty, uh, how is the surface going to intersect with the, with the localization that also varies. And then on the right side, it's the other situation. Okay, so we know where the sensors landed. We synchronized them. Now we want to do some, uh, some, some real hazard detection, but we have to calibrate the measurements. So the problem is convert point sensors and camera raw values into engineering units to enable hazard detection and recognition. For example, degrees of Celsius or Fahrenheit or Kelvin for temperature measurements. And the previous work, again, it's scattered in multiple domains. It's in this remote sensing community. Uh, they use it for calibration. Robotics, again, you want to build autonomous vehicles, so you want to calibrate your, your inputs and analyze calibrated imagery. In astronomy, they are very much concerned about uh, 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 calibration because they are looking at the sky and then trying to understand the stars military, clearly. So our primary approach was to uh, do a black body or temperature gauge calibration. And the schema that we uh, decided to use is that we either calibrate the point sensors or we calibrate the thermal infrared camera and then we use it for calibrating the other sensing modality. So um, you would say, well, the, uh, the sensors come with the calibration uh, formula. This is what comes from the manufacturer. Um, and I can show you that uh, here on the right side, if you apply the calibration camera uh, formula from the manufacturer, you will get readings that have very widespread. So still after you use that formula, you get very widespread and you have to calibrate the sensor. Now imagine if you are deploying millions of these sensors, you have to take each of them, put it on the interface board, program it, calibrate it. Once you're finished with the calibration, take another one and do the same. Millions of them. So what we proposed is, well, if you take the thermal infrared camera and you calibrate that one, which we've done in the lab, then you can take a picture and you have millions of them, or I don't know how many would fit into your field of view and in one snapshot, you can calibrate all of them. So I think uh, that, might have a, and that might have a significant application uh, uh, for, uh, for the sensors. On the other side, if you say, okay, now I calibrate all my sensors, I wanna calibrate my camera, you can, uh, just a second, you can uh, more or less put the sensors in your field of view 
and repetitively you can calibrate uh, your thermal infrared picture. Yes, please. Before you deploy the sensors, you program them, right? You have to pre-program them. Right? Before you deploy them, you have to program them. So why don't you calibrate them while you are programming? Calibration, uh, okay, so how would you calibrate them? Like if it's a temperature sensor, mm -hmm. you can have like uh, four or five temperature points, mm -hmm. and then you can calibrate uh, right. when you are programming. Right, but remember that in these days they are working on the wireless programming uh, interface. So you don't have to put them on each. So, okay, so there are two things. If you put them on the, on the interface board and you are programming, you are saying that at, that at the same time I'm going to vary the ambient temperature and collect maybe four points, do the least square feet, and then kind of calibrate them. So that's one approach. But still, you don't want to do it for million sensors. Uh, and uh, in our experience, uh, we really want to spend the least amount of time reprogramming them. And uh, the calibration uh, software that you upload might be very different from the operational software that you want to upload. So that was the motivation for that. Um, I, I have not used the wireless programming capability for these sensors. But I'm, uh, I know that Berkeley has been working on that quite a bit. And whether it's uh, used, whether, how, how much you can use it, I don't know. Um, but we, we are thinking about these two different approaches, how to calibrate whether sensors or the cameras. There are many, many, many basic questions when it comes to optimal sensor network design, and I'm just listing some of them. Is there an optimal spatial arrangement of sensor networks? We look at the linear arrangement, circle arrangement, and so forth. Where is the uh, what is the impact of other wireless devices on sensor networks? We did the experiments. What if you have your cell phone on and suddenly all the experiment uh, would report other, you know, would, would fail? What is the dependency of wireless laws on the number of active sensors? We actually were probably, <laughs> nobody really wanted to hear this, but uh, we actually measured that as you are adding more and more sensors in your environment, you will incur more and more loss. But, you know, people didn't want to hear that. Uh, what is the most effective mechanism to receive information from the wireless sensor network? And uh, the complexity is pretty large because we played with about four different communication protocols just to figure out should we buffer more, should we send immediately, sending is expensive, it's going to drain the, the battery. Um, and then, uh, at, you know, where is the trade-off? How do you synchronize data acquisition? I already addressed that issue. How to maximize information content of received sensor readings? Well, I'm... I might not want to send uh, the timestamp, but then what's the value of that measurement if I don't know when it was taken? Um, how often should one sample? What are the trade-offs sampling rate versus wireless loss? How to preserve energy? So there are plenty of research topics. And I'll just show one of them that we kind of looked at, and that's the sampling. Clearly, if you increase sampling, you get more and more measurements, that, but suddenly you have more traffic. If you have more traffic, you, are, you will start to lose packets, and at some point, no matter how much you increase the sampling, you will not be getting back the samples because there is so much traffic and so much information loss. So again, what's the trade-off? How do you design such a system? Uh, and again, on the left side, I just uh, listed the, the wireless challenges. Okay, so now let's suppose we set up the environment and we want to go to an operational mode of the system. And one example is the camera control. You want to perform continuous low bandwidth data acquisition using MICA sensors to monitor fire hazards and then trigger high bandwidth data acquisition using thermal infrared or visible spectrum cameras to recognize types of fire hazards. And again, the past work is primarily in the surveillance applications. 
And Berkeley um, has done some experiments with air conditioning and lighting systems. Our proposed approach was just really to focus on the bandwidth control and then uh, figure out the proactive camera selection. And the logic is very, very simple. More or less, if the light is on, then turn on the visible camera. If the light is off, then turn on the thermal infrared camera. And you can see the interface here. Uh, more or less, we just want to report to the operator what's the temperature, what's the light, and then uh, we would clearly show just one of the video streams. Uh, hazard analysis. Okay, so now we want to detect the hazard. And the problem, you know, there are many, many variations of this problem. You can go and scan indoor environments for hazards on a regular basis. You can acquire video and then search for hazards. <coughs> Excuse me. And then if hazards was found, if hazards were found, then identify the source. And our approach was to take the color and the temperature-based hazard detection and potentially use the spectral image analysis to understand hazards. So here is a video of the algorithm that we implemented. So if a robot walks into a room and uh, we had some candles um, on the whiteboard, and as it goes, it is a color-based uh, uh, detection of the, the, the places that uh, form a hazard. And then it would report to the operator, here is the location. And not only that, but if you want to deploy uh, a robot, and while the hazard is small, you might want to contain it. <coughs> Excuse me. You want to know the orientation and the location and so forth. <coughs> the, the human alert was another issue because when the operator is not paying attention, he might, uh, he might miss the information that there is a hazard. So how do you um, redirect his attention to the hazardous situation? And then right now, we just created a simple overlay so we can show that there is some kind of hazard Potentially, there can be a beep or something like that. And then, eventually, the whole system would have a little bit more complicated human alert logic where when it, the temperature is high and some threshold and the light is on, then turn on the visible camera, overlay the hazard, the, the region, and then maybe beep so the human is alerted. And if the temperature is larger than threshold but the light is off, then it would show the thermal IR camera uh, output and the overlay on that. We are very interested in hazard understanding. We've done a lot of work in the past with hyperspectral camera. And the basic question is, if you take a picture with the Canon camera and a Sony camera, which one, what is the true red color? Because when I'm looking at fire and I'm trying to understand what is burning, I'm really basing my, 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 conclu my conclusion is based on the color. But do I know what's really true red, true yellow, and so forth? And I bet you that if you have two cameras, they will give you different values. So we did some work. Uh, we used the hyperspectral camera to establish ground truth. And then we can use the ground truth for calibrating uh, single uh, like uh, RGB cameras. Um, we also uh, uh, went back to Maxwell equations. And actually, the work that we did uh, for, uh, for a scene modeling project, which is, uh, which is shown on the left side, if you can. Uh, uh, get a very good representation of multiple fires, and you can build a database, then you can even predict how that fire is going to look and eventually classify the fire based on the appearance. And what is shown on the left side that we build a, uh, this is called a bidirectional texture uh, function, and a database of that for multiple clutters, scene clutters. And then from measured images, we can predict images once we know the layout. 
but uh, unfortunately, we, we didn't finish this part because it's really, really very hard problem. But we want to be able to discriminate a, a fire of a sofa, which is hazardous, as opposed to a fireplace where you might have a fire and it's not a hazard. Uh, hazard confirmation. So again, the motivation is to confirm hazard when MICA sensors report inconsistent values. They might be malfunctioning or they might be malicious sensors. Hazard measurements might be too sparse, and it is desirable to increase spatial density of sensor readings. And the hazard elimination might be desirable if large-scale damage could be prevented or minimized by expedient hazard containment. So while the hazard is small, it might be much easier to contain. And our approach was to deploy more sensors using the, the, the robot and then kind of try to demonstrate a new application of robotics for hazard prevention and small, small hazard containment. And again, I'm showing this movie just for amusement, pretty much, because I brought a hairdryer from home. We put it on the platform, and the, uh, we used the robot to move closer to the hazard. The robotic arm is going to turn on the uh, hairdryer and extinguish the fire. Now, I'm saying that it's for your amusement because uh, many times I'm trying to demonstrate to our funding agency that there is a potential. I'm not saying that this is the way how it would operate in a real case. But uh, you can see the concept. Uh, so that's how it works. And uh, if I, okay. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about this kind of work, we published uh, several papers on the remote robot control. Uh, the fusion issue we addressed in one paper, the repeatability assessment of the gesture recognition and the whole uh, classification algorithm. The localization and stereo fusion, one of my master's students uh, uh, just graduated, so he has a master's thesis about it, and we have some papers. The measurement calibration, again, we have a set of papers, and one student graduated about uh, two years ago. And then the system design issues, uh, they are summarized in a technical board because I'm trying to uh, kind of uh, summarize our work so other people can learn. Um, there are also uh, publications about the hyperspectral image analysis, but again, we haven't figured out fully uh, how to do the uh, fire classification. There are some journal papers that are related to our past work. Relevance to security research. So you are all coming to the security uh, seminar. And what I want to convey to you is that building hazard-aware spaces requires an interdisciplinary um, team and expertise, as demonstrated in the presentation. And security is critical to protect information and to have safe operation of hazard-aware spaces. I just want to emphasize that uh, these wireless sensor network are networks are used for emergency and life-critical applications, so we want to make sure that nobody is going to mess up the system. And the question is how to build into a system data confidentiality, data authentication, and data freshness in this resource-constrained environment. From my perspective, from the application viewpoint, security is really needed for the wireless robot control, the fusion of multiple robot controls, the communication of the wireless sensor networks, the, the sensor programming, if it starts to be wireless, we have to be concerned about it. The camera control, we don't want the intruder to use the camera for doing something else that it's supposed to do, and the video transmission. So in general, I would say the need is to build some kind of security services for multi-instrument measurement system. That what would be really useful for the wireless sensor networks, for the data gathering aspect from multiple instruments, and then for the fusion, for the multi-instrument sensor data integration. 
Because remember that in many of the applications, eventually when you graduate and you get a job, most of the top three application requirements are accuracy, reliability, and security. Uh, I also want to say that there are, uh, there are applications uh, of my interest. Uh, there are some ongoing wireless sensor network projects funded by multiple agencies, and the red ones I highlighted because I'm involving those. So I will just mention that NSF has spent a lot of money on funding these uh, sensor, sensor projects. For example, Cleaner is the environmental engineering uh, project that deals with uh, 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 deploying sensors and measuring some environmental variables so they can uh, uh, predict, let's say, the, the waste management uh, and the uh, uh, nutrient uh, nitrate uh, or the nutrient nitrate nitrogen levels in rivers. Kuhasi is another project which is more about hydrology. And again, it's concerned about data acquisition and using remote sensing data and ground data and putting that together. Shield is a very interesting project, and I'm on the advisory board of, the, of that project, where they are trying to embed sensors into uh, uh, bulldozers, tractors, and so forth. It's led by Caterpillar. And why? Because it's so expensive to, uh, to uh, uh, repair these big, uh, big, uh, uh, big uh, vehicles, so it's much cheaper for them to embed these sensors, and the sensors will report when there is a material fatigue. So that's another one. And then the healthcare monitoring, clearly, for the healthcare at home, hospitals, battlefields, and so forth. I just want to mention that what I am trying to show is that the integration is really transferable to other application domains. The multi-instrument measurement systems are present in many engineering applications. And uh, there are application-specific instrument sensors, but the information processing issues are similar. And therefore, I kind of started to use the word ex-informatics because it refers to the process of processing the data. And uh, if you are interested, there is a book that's just coming out this month, Hydroinformatics. I wrote about 250 pages. It, the, the whole book has about 650 pages that deals just with the informatics issues in the hydrology. So if you are interested, there are, uh, there are bioinformatics uh, books, and I published one uh, book chapter here, uh, which is dealing again with informatics issues. Um, uh, but as I am saying, it's very transferable. transferable. And then guess what could be on this side, uh, slide? It's not just hydroinformatics and bioinformatics. It could be also sensor informatics. So to summarize the talk, I really wanted to just overview the research and development of, uh, of these complex systems, introduce you to hazard-aware spaces, and then kind of show you the integration aspects of, of uh, data across disparate sensing systems over time, space, and variables. If you are interested or it sounds very interesting, uh, please visit our websites. There are publications, and uh, you can ask me questions. I will probably conclude the slide with the following. Uh, the presentation with the following picture. Um, my question for the audience is, do you know where these pictures came from? These are the pictures of the Hurricane Katrina. And um, uh, the reason why I put them up is that uh, they are beautiful, but if you think about it, uh, uh, if you would change the, the whole scenario and instead of trying to deal with the the, the whole scenario after the, the hurricane hit the coast, you could have posed the question, could we have stopped the hurricane? And my, my gut feeling is that the person, or maybe the next generation like you, 
would figure out this problem by really building multi-instrument and multi-sensor systems. And you can imagine how many sensors and instruments you have to deploy to fully understand the, the whole hurricane so you can figure out how to stop the hurricane as opposed to deal with the consequences of that. So that would be my concluding remark, just something to think about. Thank you. If you have questions, please ask me.